Hi, my name is Paul Crandall, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise Church. Our vision is to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which means our hope is that you would take one step closer to Jesus after watching this service. Whether that step is from interest to curiosity or from one level of commitment to a deeper level of commitment, whatever that is, we want to respect the pace of your spiritual journey and we want to help in making that next step. In fact, personally, I want to help as well. You can email me after the service at paulc at isunrise.com. That's my personal account and I would love to know how I can help you take one step closer to Jesus. I believe after watching the service, you're going to find that our church is a safe place to hear a life-changing message. So please enjoy the content you're about to view and email us so we know how we can help you take your next step closer to Jesus. I want you to go with me to a scene this morning. Imagine this unfolding before your eyes. You find yourself on an ancient, dusty, weathered road on the outskirts of town, and you're approaching the city center, and as you get closer uh, and you're on foot, there's just this thronging crowd of people ahead of you. And so you get closer, interested to see what is going on, and there seems to be, even though you can't quite tell what's happening, there seems to be some kind of uh, maybe protest going on. People seem agitated. At the very least, this mob seems, you might describe it as unsettled. And as you get closer, you notice there's a man in the middle of all this action. And there's this crowd, and he's straining to be heard. But one of the men you assume to kind of oversee this circus that's kind of going on shouts, for the man in the center to give an account for all this commotion that he has supposedly caused. A hush falls over those who are gathered together and this man in the center begins to shout, but it's not an angry or aggressive shout, but simply loud enough to be heard. And you notice there's something different about this man. You can't quite put your finger on it, but you know he's just not quite normal. It's almost as if there's something angelic about his presence. And he addresses the crowd respectfully, though, as though they're friends or family. He begins to lay out the history of their people from the establishment of their nation, noting throughout it their, their proud heritage and how, how this God that they claim to follow has worked through them as a people for centuries now. He tells eloquent stories about the heroes of their faith, a man named Abraham and God's promise to build a great nation from him. One of his descendants, a young man named Joseph and his, his brother's betrayal, how they sold him into slavery, but yet God redeems him and he ultimately becomes second in command of the most powerful nation of his time in Egypt and then God saves his promised people from starvation through Joseph by, by moving them to Egypt. 
And then he outlines the story of Moses as the, these people become slaves in the land of Egypt. And this, this man named Moses, God rises him up. And through Aaron and Moses, great signs are performed in Egypt. And ultimately, these people are set free. How they wander around in the wilderness and, and they almost immediately, this God who did great miracles and, and saved them from their plight in life, they almost immediately abandon him in the Sinai wilderness and they worship this golden calf that they create for themselves. And yet despite that, God keeps his promise to them, even though they've abandoned him at times, and takes them under new leadership with Joshua into a land that he promised to them. And how they eventually have some, some great kings to come along. A man named David who longed to build a permanent dwelling for God among the people after the wilderness tabernacle is gone. He wants to build a temple. And how his son Solomon constructs this temple. And you begin to see as he paints with his words this tapestry that he's creating. He's weaving with his words that God has always been with his people. That he's always been keeping his promises for generations, even when they abandon him. But it's at this point in his discourse that his countenance changes a little bit. A more serious and somber tone takes hold as he utters these words. You stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, who you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And that was it. The straw that broke the camel's back. I mean, the crowd now is no longer listening intently. They have flown into an all-out rage. And you quickly realize that this, this whole situation is getting incredibly out of hand, but you're stuck now. You're in the crowd. And something in the wind has shifted. The people around you begin to shout and scream. The man in the center cries out, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The protesting from this mob gets louder. It's growing in intensity, and they're trying to drown out what he's saying. They're incensed. They're seeing red. They take off their jackets, and they begin to lay them at the, the feet of a young man standing nearby because they don't want to be impeded by bulky outer garments as they set to their murderous task. They seize the man and drag him from the city as you follow at a distance. You have to know how this ends. They throw him to the ground and they encircle him as they gather large rocks. You stand glued to the spot, unable to move, unable to look away as they lob stone after stone at this man. With his final breaths, he's able to utter these words, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It's with this he falls to the ground in a heap. And as you stagger away in absolute disbelief, you, you're just asking yourself, what in the world did I just witness? I mean, who was this man? Well, what motivated him to keep going, to not just give up and walk away? Church, if you're unfamiliar with this story, it's 
found in the book of Acts in chapter 6 and 7. It concerns a man named Stephen. We're in a series in this church looking at the book of Acts called Unstoppable Church. As we unpack Stephen's story this morning, our big idea is going to be this, that an unstoppable church holds the gospel as its highest value. It doesn't hold the gospel as a high value, but as its highest value. Because a church that doesn't stand for the gospel doesn't stand worth, it doesn't stand for anything worth value. See, for Stephen, there was nothing more important than Jesus and the gospel or the good news that Jesus came to set us free. So we have to understand first, before we dive into what Stephen did and how it impacts us and how it informs us on how to be an unstoppable church, we have to understand who is Stephen? Where did this guy come from? Because he gets a total of like two chapters and most of it is focused on his death. But at the very beginning of Acts chapter 6, we find this story. There's a bunch of people who are all living together following Christ and they, they get together and they distribute amongst themselves for people's daily needs, especially the widows and the orphans. But we find that the, the Greek believers, the Greek widows, are being left out in the daily distribution of food. And the apostles have important work to do. And it's not that this work is not important, it's just that they have devoted themselves to the preaching of the gospel. And so, like good leaders... They delegate this responsibility to someone else, right? Like, Paul is your lead pastor. He does not run student ministry. Student ministry is incredibly important. But he's delegated that responsibility to people who are good at doing that. And so here's what we find. Acts chapter 6, 3 and 7, or 3 through 7, excuse me. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, Full of the spirit of wisdom, or full of the spirit and of wisdom, excuse me, whom we all, whom, let me try that again, whom we will appoint to this good duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Now, Stephen, we're going to read the rest of the names, but Stephen is the only one who has some descriptors. And he's said to be a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and great and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Notice that they talk about the church growing after the installation of these deacons. The deacons did quiet work behind the scenes. So I want to tell you, church, if you're serving in some capacity here at sunrise and you feel like, man, that's a thankless thing. I'm doing something nobody sees or whatever. You enable the gospel to go forth and enable the people who are preaching the gospel to do things that they have been entrusted to do. So that they don't have to do the very important things that have now been entrusted to you. So the gospel continues to grow through the faithful service of people who are often unseen. Amen. And that's what Stephen was doing. That's where we find Stephen. Stephen was a man of impeccable integrity in the community of faith. He's chosen to be one of the first deacons, those who took care of the physical needs in the community of believers. 
And as we think of being an unstoppable church, a force for Jesus' kingdom in the community that God has placed Sunrise in, Hillsboro, the greater Portland area, I believe we can learn much from Stephen's brief story in chapters 6 and 7. The first thing I think we see from Stephen, and something that is incredibly important as we strive to be an unstoppable church, is that we need to, like Stephen, know and love God's word. See, it's something that's easy to say, though, when times are good. It's easy to say when things seem to be going our way. When we, in our minds, think, well, right now God is blessing me, right? When all the things are, are falling into place, it's harder to hold on to when things get sketchy. Or when suffering comes our way. Or we don't know what's going to happen next. Or we lose a job. Or we find that we're working at, <clears throat> at Intel and that we're the only believer in our department. That's where it gets a little bit tougher to do this. So when I, see, when I say that Stephen knew and loved the word, there's actually there's a double meaning there with word. If you look closely... At chapter 7, Stephen unfolds the story of the Old Testament, and it's easy to see that he has a deep love and knowledge for the written Word of God. He knows it. He tells the story, and he has a love and knowledge for that Word. But I see a deeper love for the Word of God, the capital W Word, Jesus. John 1, 1 through 1-5 tells us this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What is this personified word? Well, John's going to give us some insight into that just a few verses down in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we're not talking about just a personified word. We're talking about an actual person. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This word that Stephen knew and loved, this word he believed so strongly in that he was ready to die for it, is Jesus Christ. We have to know and love the word. Let's look back at Stephen's story. Acts 6, verses 8 through 10. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So here's what's happening. Those in power are trying to disrupt what God is doing through Stephen and the rest of the early church. Just so you know, if you live out loud for Jesus, if you become a radical for Christ, if you want to become an unstoppable church, you should expect resistance from those who do not want the boat to be rocked. I mean, it hasn't taken us long to figure this out either. I'm, I'm 
from the Seattle area, and I know Portland is very similar in a lot of ways. So feed the hungry. Someone will report it to the city council. Love those who have lost a child to miscarriage. No one bats an eye. But love a woman who's had an abortion and walk through that darkness with her. And you can watch the religious folks become a whole lot less like Jesus. Now, I'm purely pro-life. I want to let you know where I stand because I think that's a, a, a crazy statement to make here. But I don't think you can be pro-life and then not care about the woman who's just lived through her darkest day. Have compassion on the widow and the orphan, you know, like Jesus says to. (laughs) And watch who gets angry about your handouts. See, what I find so compelling about Stephen is that he knows that it is the ultra-religious people who have recently crucified Jesus in the very city where he's standing and making his stand right in this moment, and he's still willing to go toe-to-toe. You read on in Acts 6, 11 through 15, you see that they couldn't win an argument with Stephen. So they begin to fight dirty. You ever notice that? Like when people get into an argument and they know they're losing, but they're like invested now. I know you've probably never done that with your spouse, right? Uh, but you're like invested and you begin to say stuff that you're like, doesn't even make sense. You're like, yeah, well, you got like a dinosaur head. Like, you say weird stuff, and then you're like, what, did, why, what am I talking about? I don't even believe what just came out of my mouth, right? But they can't fight with him because they can't find any fault in what he's actually saying. They can't find any fault in him as a man. And just like in Jesus' trial, they paid people to testify falsely about Stephen. They pay people to lie about him. I mean, we just finished midterm elections, right? Does anybody else love election season? It's like watching a slow train wreck, right? I mean, the stuff that gets thrown out there, did you just notice, like, eventually, like, they just had nothing to do with actual issues? But it was just trying to convince you the why that other person was a terrible person? Like, it's all character debate. They couldn't find a fault in... Stephen's character, so they had to lie about him. Notice they did the same thing with Jesus. What was it that they claimed Jesus was? Well, he's a, he's a glutton and a drunkard. Why? Because Jesus liked to party with the wrong crowd. He ate and drank with sinners. So you know what we'll say about him? We'll say he's a, a drunkard and a glutton. See, it was about the character of those that Jesus chose to associate with. When humans can't find a flaw in the argument, they will go for cheap tricks. But what if your life, sunrise, what if your lives were so intimately tied to Jesus, you knew and loved the capital W word so much, the only way someone could find fault with you was to make stuff up. These people can't refute anything Stephen brings up, so they resort to false accusations. Then most of chapter 7 is just Stephen recounting the Israelites' history from Abraham to the prophets. Now, earlier I said the word had two meanings, Jesus and the scriptures. Let's look at what the author of Hebrews has to say about the lowercase w. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Do you want to know what made Stephen's adversaries so angry? The last part. The last part. Stephen wielded the word correctly, and it laid bare the thoughts and intentions of their hearts. And nobody likes having their guilt laid bare. But it is, in fact, what the scriptures do. They point to our need for a savior. Now, I want to be clear. We're going to get into this in a minute. But what I am not advocating for is that you know and love the scriptures so much that you strap yourself with a sandwich board and go to the next Trailblazers game and start yelling at people about how they need to turn or burn. Okay, I see that guy at like every Seahawks game, okay? He is not winning anybody to Christ. That's not what we're talking about. But it is a weapon. It needs to be wielded with care. Because it will show us our need for a Savior. And what these people found out is, yes, the truth does hurt. The truth will set you free. But quite often, before it does, it'll punch you in the gut. It's uncomfortable. Which means the next thing that Stephen did, and I think we can learn from, is we need to stand for the truth without compromising on love. We do not need another sandwich board Christian. It's easy to look at this discourse and think, yeah, I can't wait to show all these sinners around me how wrong they are. Yeah, but the Apostle Paul's quick to tell us, so were some of you. This is not Stephen's posture, nor was it the posture that he learned from his Savior. The default for Jesus towards humanity is compassion. It's his constant motivator. His constant motivator is love. We even see it in how he instructs the disciples to obey. The motivation isn't to be right or have the most correct theology to topple others. It's love. The the motivation isn't, well, if you don't, then you're going to get punished. It's love. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see what comes first? If you love me. John 15, 9 through 10, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remain or abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. They go hand in hand. John 15, 14, Jesus says this, you are my friends, highlighting the relational love that they have, this brotherly love, if you do what I command you. The constant example of Jesus in the Gospels is this formula, see a need, meet a need, speak to the greater need. Constantly. Right? He meets the need because why? Jesus is setting an example for us that he actually didn't have to do. Let's be clear. Jesus is the son of God. He doesn't need to earn the right to be heard. You and I, however, we do. And Jesus sets the example by meeting a felt need, whether it be that they have some affliction that he miraculously heals or feeding 5,000 hungry people. And then once he's met the need that he has seen, he moves on to their greater spiritual need. He moves on to what's really ailing them. 
He speaks the truth they need to hear. And Jesus led with love and followed it up with the truth. They are hand in glove. He never did one and not the other. What was Stephen's job? Do you remember? Loving people by meeting their daily physical needs. It's literally what Stephen did with his daily time. Was just seeing a need, meeting a need. And here we find him speaking to the deeper need. This is coupled with his God-given ability to perform signs and wonders. And it caught the attention of people who were losing a following. Let me be clear. When Jesus gets famous, people in power get jealous. They don't like to lose influence. And Stephen had this in common with Christ, compassion for his persecutors. Jesus never compromised on love. I, I hear people say all the time when comparing truth and love, like they know we're supposed to speak the truth in love. They've heard that somewhere. But it's like, well, if I have to err on one side, I'm going to err on the truth. So truth is what's important. Or I hear people on the other side, well, if I'm going to err, I'm going to err on love. Because love is what's important. I'll be real with you, Jesus never said that. And he never did that. The truth and love go together. You can't err on one side or the other. The Apostle Paul is actually where we find this most famous saying, and it's when he's actually warning us not to fall into false doctrine or be be easily swayed toward deceptive teaching. He says this in Ephesians 4.15, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Jesus did not give us an example that erred on truth instead of love, or an example that erred on love instead of truth. Speaking, of, uh, speaking the truth without love is just noise, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. It's like that sandwich board guy I talked about earlier. He's got all kinds of truth, potentially, but he's just noise. Is anybody listening? There's no love in the approach. Inversely, though, loving people without speaking the truth never actually points them to the Savior. And think about that. It's never loving to love people without pointing them to the truth. How can I actually say that I I love my kids if I don't lead them to the truth? If I'm just loving them, it's, it's empty. If there's no truth to point people toward. It's like I have the answer, but I don't want to give you the answer because it might be inconvenient. Simply getting along with others is passive. It's not loving. I mean, imagine if you knew someone was in mortal danger, but letting them know would impact them negatively. Is it more loving to forgo the truth? Imagine a world in which you have a doctor who would never give you bad news because, even if they have the cure because of the heartache that would go along with knowing the truth. Of maybe the hard road that would, that would ensue from taking the treatment. Do you want that loving doctor? I'm going to opt out. Oh, but let's switch it around. Imagine you have a doctor with terrible bedside manner. Terrible bedside manner. He, he gives you the facts but never empathizes. 
Just the experience of that, you got the truth, but the delivery may actually leave you looking for a second opinion, wasting precious time. Neither are good options. So let's go back to Stephen and see where he falls. His dying words in Acts 7 verse 60 are this, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Jesus at the crucifixion says this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They both have compassion for the very people who are murdering them. Which leads me to the last thing here. Not only do we have to know and love the word, not only do we have to make sure that we're showing compassion to not compromise the truth, but do it with love. We have to be ready to give everything for Jesus. I'll be real with you, that's a hard one for me. This is not easy. Stephen pays the ultimate price as the first martyr for Christ in the scriptures. He's the first person post-resurrection who dies for following Jesus. Jesus led the way, though, by dying for us first. After washing his disciples' feet at the Last Supper, John 15, 12 through 13 says this. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. How did he love them? He loved them by serving them in a way that the lowest servant in the household would have done, by washing their dirty feet. So he tells them how he's loved them and says, follow this example. Then he's going to tell them, he's going to allude to how he's going to love them. He's going to call them to the same thing. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans 5.8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other translations it says, while we were still enemies of God, while we were still adamantly opposed to the thought of God, before knowing him, Christ died for us. Here's the thing that sets Christianity, apart from every other world religion, is that our God took on flesh and died on our behalf. He doesn't say, you die for me. He says, I'll die for you. Jesus calls all followers to be ready for persecution if we follow him. John 15, 18 through 20, the words of Jesus, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Jesus tells us that we have to be willing to lose everything on his behalf. In Luke 14, 26, when he warns the disciples to count the cost of following him, he's going to say, there's a cost associated with following me, and you need to count it carefully, because everything of value actually is going to cost something. Verse 26, he says, if anyone comes to me, does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, I want you to understand, this is a very 
a very incredible verse, but I think there's something that needs to be said here, is that Jesus isn't telling you and me that we have to hate our spouse, we have to hate our people in our family, that we have to hate people. He's making a comparison. He's saying, with the intensity that you love me, all other relationships will look like hate. That is the disparity between how much we're to love Jesus and what he's done for us and how we love others, how we love those intimate relationships in our family. Jesus is saying, you can't be my disciple unless I'm number one. Why is suffering and such a high cost something that is so compelling? I mean, think about the the things that are worthy in life, the things that you spend money on, the things you're willing to save for. They're valuable to you. And you're willing to sacrifice for them. Now, I know that I might not look at, but I am no art buff, okay? Uh, I look at most modern art and I go, that looks like it was painted by a two-year-old. Like, I I don't get it. And if it was painted by, like, my two-year-old, I'd be like, oh, cool, like, I'll, I'll hang that in my house. But I'm not paying exorbitant amounts of money for it. It doesn't make any sense to me. But for someone who understands the art world and understands the piece of art and the artist and the value, these are worth insane amounts of money. Some of, the, some of their values are incalculable. See, the places on planet Earth where the church is growing the fastest are the places on planet earth where the most persecution, where the highest cost exists. In India and China, the church is exploding and people are going to their deaths, to prison and being beaten for following Jesus, for even owning a copy of God's word in their language, something we take for granted. The proof of the value is in how much someone is willing to give. So if someone is willing to suffer for their faith, it begs the question of why they're willing to give so much. Stephen could have renounced his faith in Christ and likely just walked away. He could have said, you know what, guys? I was just kidding. My bad. I'm out. Jesus could have decided that the cost of your salvation was too high. I mean, think about what draws your attention to the people you admire, to the people that influence our culture, to the people that, that you have posters of as a high school student in your bedroom, to the people that you will make sure that you don't miss it or you record it, right? Athletes and musicians who have poured their se- themselves into a singular effort. They've had to sacrifice a ton to get where they are. Right? Like, I mean, I'm a Seahawks fan, and I know we lost this morning in Germany. Sorry, spoiler alert. All right? But, like, if you want to be DK Metcalf or Tyler Lockett, you can't decide that you want to eat at McDonald's three times a day. Because you're going to be slow, like me. Okay? Like, you're not going to be two of the best receivers in the NFL. You have to sacrifice. You have to say no to some things and decide that something else is worth sacrificing those things for. If you're an influencer, 
You have to pretty much give up one side of the political aisle in order to influence one subset of of people, right? You look at TikTok and Instagram and all the people who are influencing the young culture right now, what did they have to give up? They have to give up influencing one side. So they have to sacrifice. Maybe they're actually sacrificing familial ties in order to influence over here. You know, my, my brother-in-law is a doctor, and I, like, he makes, like, I think an obscene amount of money, right? So, like, there are times where, like, I would joke and be like, oh my gosh, like, I should have, like, become a doctor, <laughs> right? Because he's got a lot of cool stuff. But then I started thinking about what he had to give up to get there. And, you know, he didn't have his 20s. He had to sacrifice to get where he was because he saw the prize as valuable, So he didn't have like age 18 to 28 to enjoy. He was a student all the time. See, all these people decided that giving up much was worth the end result. They counted the cost and decided the thing I'm pursuing is worth it. So imagine, just imagine if Sunrise Church as a church decided that nothing Nothing in this world was too valuable to give up in pursuit of following Jesus and being an unstoppable church. What if you loved and knew the word? What if you spoke the truth without compromising on love? What if you were willing to give up everything for the cause of Christ? Because an unstoppable church holds the gospel as its highest value. How would the city of Hillsboro, how would the greater Portland area be changed for the gospel if we began to live in such a way? Let me pray for us as we worship together. God, thank you so much for the gift of your word, for the gift of stories such as Stephen's and other heroes of our faith, imperfect men and women who strove to follow you in radical ways, who decided that following you, Jesus, was worth more than anything else. God, we thank you for examples of people who lived in a time where the church was seemingly unstoppable. God, we ask for sunrise that this would be a church that takes seriously the call and the cost of following you, Jesus. That Holy Spirit, you move through this church in an amazing way to be an unstoppable force for your kingdom, Jesus. That their sole purpose might be winning souls and bringing glory to the Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen.